Hello and welcome to NC State's Audio Abstract. I'm your host, Tracy Peake. Our guts aren't one-size-fits-all, and they don't work in a vacuum. The microbial communities inside mammalian guts are as varied as we are, and they have enormous impacts on our overall health. Erin McKinney is an assistant professor of applied ecology here at NC State, and she is an expert on all things gut. Welcome, Erin. Hey, Tracy. Thanks for having me. (laughs) I'm glad you could be here. This is kind of a random one, Um, but your work is really interesting and varied. Um, And actually, we spoke before during the pandemic on sourdough because of the microbial goings on in those communities. So now we're moving, we're pivoting, as it were, to the gut. Why, Why are we studying guts? Well, so we all have guts. And actually... Uh, different species have guts that are different shapes. So there's, you know, the the anatomy inside you is kind of a, a record keeping of your evolutionary history, right? Uh, different species have different shaped guts, different lengths of guts that we've evolved over time to digest specific different diets, right? So if I see a gut and it looks very long and very... Uh, capacious, right? If it's a palatial gut, especially (laughs) if there's a cecum in it, which to me is the wonder pouch. That's what I call a cecum. It's um, the wonder pouch between the small intestine and the large intestine. If I see a long roomy gut, especially with a cecum, I know this is an animal that eats a lot of fibrous, difficult to digest plant matter and depends a lot on microbes to digest those food components. If I see a very simple gut, I know, oh, it's easy to digest. Um, So the gut itself is kind of a a record keeper of the evolutionary history and the feeding strategies um, that that animal uses. And then the microbes tell me a story of, you know, variation, um, how much variability there is between animals within the same species, tells me a story about regulation. How important is it that very specific members of the microbial community are present for their digestive abilities or for the compounds that they produce that can really impact that animal's health? So that story of variation and membership can tell us a lot about how important, how specific the microbiome is to help the particular animals or individuals digest their food. Okay. And so I like the palatial gut thing. I enjoy that very much. Mind palace, gut palace. Gut palace. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and it's interesting that you bring up mind too, because the gut has been referred to as sort of the second brain Mm -hmm. of the body. And we know that it's a lot more important to our health than we thought before. It's our primary interface with the world. Okay. We think about your skin, like I'm touching everything. Yeah. Okay. But my gut is lined with immune cells, right? Every time I put something in my mouth, and for toddlers, that's like much more varied than adults, right? But every time you put something in your mouth, you're sampling the world around you. So your gut is lined with immune cells in part because your body, your immune system is trying to learn about the world around you in ways that your skin cannot tell you. Your skin is a barrier. It's a membrane, right? It keeps you from dehydrating. Like we have cornified skin cells on the surface, right? It is is tough. Um, Your gut is not tough. 
And, you know, so it's your primary interface with the nutritional landscape, what foods are available, but also with microbes and pollen and everything that makes the world the world. Wow. I've never <laughs> thought of it that way. I'm very glad to know that. That makes me feel good. It also makes me feel kind of depressed about my subpar breakfast this morning. I'm not sampling the world in the way that I should be doing it. It's knowledge for potential future empowerment. <laughs> okay, there we go. I will, be I will be empowered in the future when I choose my breakfast. But, you know, you've worked with a lot of different species of animals. You've done work with gorilla guts and bear guts and rhino guts and all the microbiomes going on. Um... Have you found any, like, common threads among these species? Because you're talking about how it's a very diet-specific, diet-driven. And, you know, is there anything about the animal microbiomes that you're studying that could be relevant to human health as well, or humans? Absolutely. So some common themes, I would say, are um, the microbiome gives us some insights to, you know, how these animals are navigating the world and their, their evolutionary history. Um, and also the resources that they need and how they utilize those resources, right? Um, the microbes can also tell us about consequences of changing resources. So for wildlife, this becomes a big question or a potential for um, informing conservation management. Okay. Right? And managing wild populations, whether they are um, facing endangerment or not, right? Um, all of those animals in the wild as are we humans, we're all living in a changing world, an increasingly changing world. So how is a black bear guts, gut microbiome setting it up to succeed or to struggle in the future as resources change, as climate changes, right? Um, for southern white rhinoceros or for gorillas, you know, similarly, how are their gut microbiomes finely tuned and adapted to their specific current feeding strategies and what does that mean for them in the future? If you're an herbivore, then you have a specialized gut microbiome. So you might have less wiggle room or less adaptive flexibility compared to an American black bear that has a short garden, hunt go, uh, a short garden hose gut. Say that so, three times fast, yeah, right? <laughs> Tongue twister, gut twister, yeah. um, but not a gut twister because it's so short and simple. So there's a ton of variability, and they're eating highly diverse foods. So with all of that variety, they may have better odds at being able to adapt um, to pivot in a world of in a world of changing nutritional landscapes, <laughs> right? Right. Um, How will the black bear survive? Right. Yeah. Well, okay. especially if they're dumpster diving or if they live in a state where hunters are allowed to bait with more or less processed foods. Okay. Right? What does it mean when a black bear eats a hostess snack cake or, you know, a block of cheese or a handful of Skittles and sardines, these, you know, or, or saltine crackers. These are all bait items that are used in some states and that are banned in other states. So what does that mean? So it's not only for those uh, problematic human-wildlife interactions, you know, those host behaviors, it also has repercussions and ramifications for the gut microbiome and for the bear's future abilities to pivot and take advantage of different uh, food items. But all of this is really fascinating. And 
it would also be helpful to people who are doing preservation work, right? Because they know they need to include specific elements for these animals' diets. Are are these animals adaptable? So if you had a, a white rhino, for example, which is an endangered species, and, you know, we're trying to preserve and conserve and, like, bring it back, um, do you have to always have that very specific diet that they would have in the wild? Or can you, like, wean them off of that, change it for them, so that if we did get sufficient population to send them back into the wild, they'd be able to survive on what's there now? That's a great question. And that is a kind of a concept that's related to a lot of populations under human management, Mm -hmm. right? Under human care, um, like at zoos. So because at zoos, you know, if, if you go to see rhinos in Asheboro, North Carolina, they're obviously not rhinos in Africa, right? They are not a wild population. And in North Carolina, we are very fortunate to have a warm climate, like warm enough that we can grow a lot of browse items, a lot of natural plants. And the North Carolina Zoo, just as a brief tangent, biggest zoo in the world, right? So you actually have the acreage for these animals to be interacting with a natural environment and to be um, truly exhibiting some of those natural behaviors, Mm -hmm. right? However, the plants that we have in Asheboro, North Carolina, on exhibit, are not the same species, nor do they have the exact same nutritional composition or produce some of the same plant compounds as the species that rhinos have evolved to consume in, you know, their wild ranges. If, if we are trying to keep these animals under human management, what foods can we feed them? And ideally, we want to feed them foods that are commercially available so that they will be available, you know, in a plentiful supply. You don't want to get them accustomed to one species of plant and then have to change them again because they're out of stock or out of season or supply chain issues, right? right? So we're already playing those kind of, um, those calculated translational games. Okay. What do I feed a rhino in captivity to keep them healthy? How much romaine lettuce do they need to satisfy certain requirements? Do I then um, give them some kale? Can I get a hold of you know some some other perhaps um, non agricultural crop? Right? Mm-hmm. Um, are there other plants? Are there trees that we can harvest leaves from? And and what would those be uh, that will provide? Surely the fiber, but also vitamin content, also those secondary plant compounds. Um, So, you know, depending what compounds are present in the plants, it can prevent health issues or it might actually cause health issues. Because it would change sort of Mm -hmm. the microbial. Not just microbial processes, but it also changes what nutrients are available and uh, either, you know, tannins in plants actually bind proteins, and a lot of trace minerals. It, the plant doesn't want to be eaten, but if you can't prevent herbivory in the current generation, you can bind all those nutrients and kind of starve out the next generation of herbivores, right? So it's this... Plants are mean. <laughs> plants are strategic. And I don't want to be eaten either. I mean, yeah, I get it. I get it. Um, <laughs> mean plant. Brilliant. You can't kill off the rhino's plant. That's mean. So all that to say... Zoos are already um, kind of acclimating populations of of exotic species to 
a variety of different plants or, and different food items. So I think it is possible for the wild populations to adapt as long as the change doesn't occur so quickly that all of their current food dies out before the next plant can take over. Right. Right? Right. When, when, we, <laughs> when change progresses at a faster rate than animal and plant species can evolve and adapt, that's when we all run into trouble. That's when, that's we, when have we have mass extinctions. Yes. So. Absolutely. Well, what are you hopeful that um, other researchers can take away from the work you're doing? I think for wildlife populations, um, we could help inform, uh, you know, management agents, um, folks in, you know, departments of natural resources uh, across the country. If they are working with specific populations and like using the black bear example um, here in North Carolina, the Asheville population of black bears is in a unique context compared to the eastern North Carolina black bears of Hyde and Terrell counties. Right. Um there are differences in what agricultural crops are grown nearby. There are differences in, you know, what natural resources that are not provided by humans are nearby. If we compare uh, North Carolina to Michigan or other states with different hunting policies, what types of foods, how processed can those foods be that we use for baits? What is the impact of a hostess snack cake versus trail mix on the gut microbiome? You know, we, we noted a, a dramatic and statistically significant decrease in um, microbial diversity in bears consuming more processed foods, particularly more corn. What does that mean in a world where corn is everywhere? Corn you know? is everywhere. <laughs> we Plants are mean and corn is everywhere. The taglines take yeah. place. <laughs> Things you didn't know you would learn from the gut microbiome. Right. So, so. There are opportunities for reflection on our own health, the consequences of our own navigating the nutritional landscape, especially, you know, in a world of complex and very processed foods. Right. Um, yeah. So I think there are opportunities to kind of look in the mirror and think, oh. and, and something that I've really loved about studying carnivores in general is that we found so many surprising things. Um, in, in some of the first studies and, and in working with students, I bring a lot of this research into the classroom so that, you know, I can teach my students how to analyze data, which, you know, is scary for them. But I love using um, or, or bringing in carnivore microbiome data sets for the students to study because there is so much variation. Right. What does that mean about bare gut microbiomes? It means there's so much variation that we don't get a clear-cut, significant, or strong signal of diet differences or of sex differences or of gut sight. What does that mean? I mean, to me, that is so cool because most of the research that we know from herbivores and omnivores is that gut sites are very different from one another. And, you know, physiologically, because, you know, we digest different foods uh, and different nutrients at those different gut sites. So naturally, the microbiomes associated with those different gut sites have adapted to those unique physiological conditions, right? So we expect to see significant differences between the stomach, the small intestine, the large intestine. When you don't see any difference, what does that mean about bears? 
there's just so much variation that even though you're digesting different macronutrients there, it's in and out so quickly, the body has no time to regulate. The microbiome has no time to adjust or adapt or specialize to those specific environmental conditions. It is in and out. So does that mean that bears are just going to survive forever? I hope so. <laughs> Shafax have mm-hmm. such long guts that if you feed them fruit, if they get a hold of a piece of fruit, it will ferment and rot inside them and it could kill them. Oh, wow. Right. So so in some cases, you know, exploring new dietary uh, potential, you know, new new feeding strategies could be detrimental. It could be deadly. Wow. So, so that helps us to think about, you know, which species are most at risk in a world of changing resources. Wow. Well, and that kind of leads me into sort of my final question that I always ask everybody, which is what is like the one coolest factoid or the coolest thing that you did? It could be a thing that you found. It could be an experience you had um, while doing this research. It's a hard question. It is a hard question. I I should have like studied up for this. (laughs) So I'm actually going to shift from the gut microbiomes because to me, like the poop and guts, always amazing. And I always love studying the gut microbiomes and these microbial communities. There are so many opportunities to say, wow, check your hubris at the door. It was never about us and what we thought we could control. It's about the microbes. Duh. Right. <laughs> they don't care about us. They care about what they can digest. Uh, but, you know, stepping outside of that microbial focus, um, I did uh, get an amazing opportunity in 2017 and 2018 to measure the guts of 45 human cadavers at the Duke Anatomy Labs. Um, they were part of the Anatomical Gifts Program. Um, so, you know, so these, these people had donated their bodies to science. Right. I'm just curious, like, not about how people donate their bodies to science. I read, was it stiff? Oh, I think yeah. It, yeah. Yeah. Okay. But, no, I'm just curious as to how an opportunity to measure guts comes up. Um, yeah, this is... This is kind of a a perfect example of networking and how things just fall into place. Okay. If, if, If you're open to talking to a lot of different people and if you know good people, you know, fun people. Um, so... Let's see. Gut people. (laughs) So, so after I, um, I got my doctorate studying lemur gut microbiomes at Duke University. Okay. Where I met Roxanne Larson. Um, so... Roxy is awesome in her own right. And we had, of course, kept up because I have trouble leaving people behind. So after my doctoral dissertation defense, um, I was moving on to a postdoc working with Rob Dunn at Mm -hmm. NC State um, in applied ecology. And he had worked with Amanda Hale, who is a a doctoral candidate um, in biology. So she's figuring out, like, how or why people might have died or, you know, how... How does uh, variation in our skeleton, you know, correspond to different traits um, or, okay. or different life experiences? So Rob and Amanda had worked together to figure out this, you know, we don't think about guts being different. How much diversity is there in guts? They're inside us, and yet we all have a gut. So 
how could we even measure that? So Amanda worked with Colleen Grant in the biology department to come up with, to revamp their dissection labs and come up with a protocol, you know, hey students, as you are dissecting this cat or rat or pigeon or frog or whatever, um, don't just find the landmarks because that's a little boring, right? Mm -hmm. Where are the kidneys? Where's the esophagus? Where's the gallbladder? How about you also measure the size of it? So that's awesome. We have this comparative animal aspect, but you know, the dream that was not yet realized when I entered Rob's lab was the human component because who has access to humans? Right. Well, so I had defended my dissertation. I'm having a cider with Roxy, you know, celebrating my successful defense. And, and Roxy mentions that, you know, she's working in, she's on the education design team for the Duke Anatomy Labs. And I'm like, wait, like human corpses? And she's like, yeah, you seem very excited right now. I said, well, <laughs> could, could we come measure the guts of those cadavers after your students are done dissecting? And she said, yeah, let's talk. And it happened. So okay. we were able to go... We we're able to go measure the guts of 45 different people. And are they standard? It is just completely different. Based on what we found, the three of us in this room probably have different guts. So, and, and that has huge ramifications. You know, when we think about the gut, it's a representative diagram usually drawn from a textbook, right? The placement, not just the positioning, might be very different, but also the size, the length of these different parts. I almost missed one guy's appendix completely because it was growing off the back of the cecum, not off the front, right? Um, somebody else, we found like a 10 centimeter long appendix. That's really long for a human, we think, according to the standardized diagrams. Right. So um, another, um, another uh, a woman had just a huge cecum. I was, I was very envious of her cecum. So that, you know, the standard would be, you know, like the little coin purse, like two inches across, maybe mm -hmm. this woman's was like a clutch bag. And which, of course, now there needs to be a sideline of purses that are actually modeled after guts of different species. Just saying, uh, yeah. school of design, I'm coming for you on <laughs> future projects. Okay. Uh, but this woman had this a truly a palatial cecum. And I'm like, You're, you had so many different microbes there. And they were so happy in that little oxbow lake. And they had so much time to do the fermentation. I mean, amazing. Amazing. Wow. So, and I know you don't have this data, but was there anything to lead you to think that maybe the size, like the difference in cecum size or gut size correlated to the diets they ate? Like, I'm sure when you donate your body to science, you don't also give them like a right nutritional history. Right. And it's too late to look at the contents of mm -hmm. the gut to figure out if the microbes are different. Yeah, so we do know from, from other previous studies that fiber is fermented by microbes to produce short-chain fatty acids, acetate, propionate, and butyrate. Butyrate in particular, not only is it very important for anti-inflammatory properties, so it can actually prevent the development of cancer, mm. right? Uh, very exciting. Um, but also butyrate early in life stimulates the development of the gut. Um, yeah, so butyrate 
uh, based on what we know about butyrate as being very important for kind of triggering the development of the gut mm-hmm. um, and kind of making it more complex. Uh, I, I would speculate, I might hypothesize, that people with really glorious palatial guts, especially if we took a look at those villi and microvilli, the surface area, that those more complex guts might be associated with more fiber consumption perhaps. Okay. Well, that's fascinating to know. Also, eat your fiber. Yes. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) What they've been saying is true all along. It's been true forever. Just maybe more deeply than we could have imagined. Okay. Well, thank you so much for being here today, Erin. This has been very fascinating. I have learned a lot more about guts and bears and people and six degrees of academic separation from (laughs) cadavers, right? Than I thought I would. Um... But yeah, thank you so much. It's been great. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. We have been speaking today with Erin McKinney, an assistant professor of applied ecology here at NC State. This has been Audio Abstract. I'm your host, Tracy Peake. Thank you so much for listening.